A man backed his car out of a crowded parking lot, and he accidentally hit the car behind him. He got out, he surveyed the damage, he took out a piece of paper, and he scribbled a note. He then stuck the note on the windshield of the damaged car. Well, bystanders who saw the accident, they assumed that the man had written down his name and his phone number and his insurance information, that the man was being honest about his mistake. But when the owner returned to the car and read the note, this is what it said. I've just smashed your car. People are watching me. They think I'm writing down my name and address, but I'm not. Have a nice day. The culprit had made folks believe that he was something he was not. The man was a hypocrite. Well, the book of Malachi could be labeled the anatomy of a hypocrite. Here's Malachi's message in the words of the old country preacher. Be who you is, because if you ain't who you is, then you is who you ain't. The hypocrite is a person who is who they ain't. It's been said a hypocrite is like a straight pin, pointed in one direction but headed in another. He's the actor on a stage. He speaks his lines, he plays his part, but he himself is far away somewhere else. Remember, Jesus saved his harshest words, not for the blatant sinner, but for the bogus saint. And the same is true for the prophet Malachi. Well, verse 1 is introduction. Read with me. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Well, like the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the two we studied previously, Malachi was a Jew who returned to Jerusalem from the nation's exile in Babylon. But Malachi lived later, a century after Haggai and Zechariah. There were actually three waves of Jewish immigration back to Israel. In 536 B.C., Zerubbabel led a crew of Jews to rebuild the temple. In 458 B.C., a priest named Ezra brought revival to the people. And in 444 B.C., Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to reconstruct the city's walls. And this Nehemiah, he was quite a leader. With a sword in one hand, with a shovel in the other hand, he fought off his enemies and he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days. Nehemiah served as the mayor of Jerusalem for 12 more years before he returned to Persia and issue a report. And I'm sure you've heard the old saying, while the cat is away, the mice will play. Well, that's what happened in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's absence. In the year that he was away, God's people started acting like pagans. They ignored God, and they neglected the temple, and they forgot the scriptures. Oh, they were back. They had returned to the land, but now they had turned their backs on God. Well, Nehemiah eventually came back to Jerusalem, and he served a second term. But in his absence, God raised up a prophet, a man named Malachi, to perform a spiritual CAT scan on the nation and to prescribe a remedy for the people's hypocrisy. And you know, this is what we need. Hey, far be it from me to call anybody a hypocrite. I suppose, though, that if all of us were sandwiches, 
there would be a slice or two of bologna in each of us. You see, there are areas in your life and in my life where we're not what people think we are. We're not what we should be. We're not even what we want to be. We is who we ain't. And we need Malachi to challenge our hypocrisy. Well, he begins here in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? You know, to become a hypocrite, a person has to harden his heart. And in order to harden his heart, he first has to deny God's love. And that's what Israel had done. But God did love Israel. In fact, God responds to their accusation in verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now here is proof of God's love. He chose Jacob over Esau. Now understand when the Bible says that God hates Esau, God is not intending to be taken literally. Here is a form of Hebrew speech that we call hyperbole. It's the use of exaggeration to hammer home a point. Here's another good example of hyperbole in Scripture. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. There Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now obviously, Jesus doesn't mean to be taken literally. Other scriptures tell us to honor our parents and to love our siblings. But Jesus exaggerates to make a point. He's saying our love for God needs to be so strong, so passionate, that it makes natural affection toward parents and siblings look like hate in comparison. Here he's saying that God loved Esau and he loved Edom. But he loved Jacob and Israel with a special love. He chose Jacob for unique status and special privilege. In fact, God's love for Israel and Jacob was so overwhelming that it made his love for Esau look like hate. Of course, the question often arises, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? And the answer is, we have no answer. It's a mystery. It's hidden in the wisdom and in the sovereignty of God. Once a man approached Griffith Thomas with the same question, he said, the Bible says God hates Esau, what gives? The pastor responded, I've got a more perplexing problem than that. The Bible also says God loves Jacob. Well, the real brain buster here is not that God hates an evil person like Esau, but that he loves an evil person like Jacob. I mean, Jacob didn't deserve God's love any more than Esau. Jacob was a dirty thief, remember. He was a double-crosser and a con man and a liar, and yet God chose him anyway. The only explanation for God choosing any of us, in fact, is his amazing grace. I don't know about you, but I deserve a hot spot in hell. And yet instead, in Christ, I have been given special status and spiritual privilege. Embrace this grace. Don't question it. God has been gracious to us all. Well, the Jews, they denied God's love, but then they also despised God's name. Notice God asks in verse 6 of chapter 1, He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? 
says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. The Jews claimed a relationship with God. They called him father. They called him master. But nothing in their conduct substantiated that claim. I mean, if God is your father, well, then shouldn't you act like a child and show him some respect and be an obedient son? How can you call him master if you never serve him? You know, A.W. Tozer once wrote, he said, it's not that people don't want God. It's that people have things they want more than God. And we are determined to have what we want most. You know, we all need to ask the question, what do we want most? Here's a searching poem. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Are you settling for a mere $3 worth of God? I hope you know God doesn't come in small quantities. He comes in bulk only. You take Jesus for who he is, all of him, or you don't really follow him at all. Well, in verse 7, God voices his third complaint. The Jews denied his love, they despised his name, and then they defiled his altar. What they did was trivialize worship. The Lord says to Israel in verse 7, You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. You see, the Jews offered worship in their rebuilt temple, but they begrudged the time it took and the effort it required to do so. You know, it's been said of our society, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. You know, seldom are people today serious about our beliefs, about spiritual issues, about our relationship with God. We call ourselves believers, but are we? Do we? Like the Jews of Malachi's day, Christians today tend to play at their Christianity. They lack passion. Well, in verse 8, God gets more specific. He says, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? The law required the Jews to sacrifice the best of the flock. Instead, they were giving to God their leftovers. He says, take that crippled, sickly little lamb that's going to die soon anyway and, and give it to Sonny Purdue. Give it to your governor. But don't give it to God. Don't give him the leftovers. Don't give something sickly and about to die to God and then call it a sacrifice. It's no sacrifice. And yet, isn't this what we do when we send old clothes that we wouldn't be caught dead wearing to the Salvation Army and then call it an offering to God? Or we spend all night reading a novel or watching television and then suddenly we pick up our Bible at the end of the day and read a verse or two and, and then, wow, how devoted we are. Isn't this what we do when we go out and do what we please six days a week and then we begrudge the idea of giving God an hour and a half on Sundays? We think nothing of, of dropping big bucks for the concert tickets. 
Yet we're making a serious sacrifice now. We're really being abnormally generous by slipping that 20 in the offering box. Are you giving to God the leftovers of your time and your talent and your effort and your money? Do you throw him a few crumbs, toss him a bone every now and then just to sort of keep him off your back? Are you giving to God the sickly and the scrawny of your flock? Hey, God wants our best, our very best. The first fruits, the cream of the crop, the pick of the litter. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, David expresses his worship to God. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. I mean, if it doesn't cost us, then how can it be deemed a sacrifice? Give God only what you can afford to give him. And all you're doing, friend, is tipping. God was so displeased with their worship that he would have preferred someone to just shut down the temple doors than to continue to foster the charade. God says in verse 10, he says, Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you. This is all a sham, God is saying. You're just going through the motions. And notice in verse 13, he says, You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord. They viewed worship and serving God as a burden, as a drudgery, as a duty, not a joy. Oh, what a weariness. I mean, here's the worship leader. Oh, I can't sing tomorrow. My voice is so tired. I've been screaming for my football team all day today. All right, here's the green team member. Man, what was I thinking when I volunteered to cut all this grass? Or the nursery worker. Man, I got to go up to that church and wipe snotty noses again today. Hey, if you've signed up to serve and yet you're always complaining, can't they find somebody else? Here's what you're doing. You're sneering at God's altar. You are insulting God. You are saying he's not worthy of your sacrifice in your time, in your effort. And be careful, because, oh yes, God can find somebody else. Have you forgotten what an honor and a privilege it is to serve and worship the Lord? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. It literally reads, a hilarious giver. Hey, worship and service needs to be lots of laughs, a delight, a thrill, a joy. If it's not, it's time to troubleshoot the problem. D.L. Moody used to say, I may get tired in the work, but I never get tired of the work. Serving a God you love intensely will never get boring. Now, Malachi chapter 2 is a word to the priests of Israel. For there was a truth that the priests had failed to teach the people. And a sin had resulted that had become common among the people. Verse 11 explains. Chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. And what is that institution? It's the institution of marriage. 
Now notice here several points from this verse. First, marriage is an institution that God loves. God created marriage. It was his idea and his ideal for human beings. Second, it's a holy institution. Marriage is sacred and special. God has labeled marriage the highest form, the highest level of commitment in human affairs. Hey, I'm going to tell you, living together, just shacking up with your friend, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, that's a lesser relationship. Don't you dare say, well, in God's eyes, we're married. No, you're not. You're making a mockery of God's will if you make that statement. Cohabitating is more an expression of reservation than dedication. I'm just keeping it real now. Anything short of marriage is a convenience, not a commitment. You know, the Jews of Malachi's day, they had marred marriage in two ways. First, they married unbelievers. And second, they practiced unbiblical divorce. Verse 11 says of Judah, He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, when God forbid Israel from marrying other races, he wasn't concerned about racial purity. He was concerned about spiritual purity. As a matter of fact, if you study the genealogy of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you'll find racially mixed blood in Jesus' genealogy. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. God never had a problem with interracial marriage. What bothered God was when a believer married a non-believer. You see, God told the Jews not to marry foreign women because he knew that they would drag his people into idolatry. Understand, marriage is a powerful attachment. A spouse has tremendous influence, for better or worse. And God knew that it was a short jump from betting an idolater to bowing to their idol. If you want a happy, harmonious home, be careful to marry a true believer. Marry an unbeliever, and friend, your home will become a battleground. I could feel milk jugs after milk jugs with the tears that have been shed in my office by people who've chosen to ignore the scriptures and marry an unbeliever. Oh, she thought she could change him. Oh, he promised to be open. But stubbornness only hardens after the wedding vows. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 warns us, And rightly so. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We're we're being told to be careful who we marry. But then, after we're married, be careful how we treat the person we're married. For God's second complaint about marriage here is in verse 13. The Jews cried to God. They weeped on the altar. They gave an offering. They wanted his blessing, but he never responded. And they wondered why. Well, Malachi explains to them why in verse 14. He says, The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. They wanted God to promise them a blessing. While they were violating the promises they had made to their spouse back at home. 
from hypocrisy in the temple to hypocrisy at home. Several years ago, there was an article that appeared in the Atlanta Constitution. It was entitled, Bless This Divorce, Couples Seal Separation in Church. The article was about a couple in Decatur's first Christian church that wanted to end their marriage in a special church service. The pastor explained, since both are members of this congregation, it seems appropriate to ask God to approve the ending of the marriage. What? What did you say? Appropriate to ask God to approve of what his word has already condemned? You think that's appropriate? I think that's ludicrous. And yet some of you want your pastor to approve of your divorce. And I can't. My job is to help you see marriage through God's eyes. Not help you justify your actions in your own eyes. If you divorced on biblical grounds, and there are biblical grounds for divorce, if you did so, you have God's approval. And you have ours, though you don't need it. But if you divorced your spouse because you got bored, or because you just felt unhappy, or because a better offer came along, or because it got hard. We love you, but for your sake, we urge you to repent. For you need God's forgiveness, not your pastor's approval. I think verses 15 and 16 are two of the most vital verses on marriage in the Bible. We're told, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? Notice this, marriage is oneness. Marriage is more than a contract, or a romance, or a living arrangement. First and foremost, marriage is a union. It's the interweaving of two lives. That means that you can't pull them apart without some tearing and some ripping occurring. It's a spiritual, mystical union that binds a man and a woman together and makes them one. And why one? Well, again, notice verse 15. For he seeks godly offspring. Notice this. The best way to ensure well-adjusted, emotionally healthy, spiritually solid kids is to ensure that they have two parents united and growing in a loving relationship. A great way to damage and wound those kids is to rip their parents apart. I mean, study after study now shows the devastating consequences on divorce on their kids. We're told here God seeks godly offspring. And if for no other reason than your kids, a couple should hunker down and work it out and keep their family intact. Over the years, I've spoken to hundreds of couples on the verge of divorce. And they're always quick to offer their excuses and their justifications. But seldom does anyone ask me what God thinks about divorce. Isn't that interesting? They know what they think about it, but nobody even cares about what God thinks. Well, ask or not, God tells us here in verse 16. He says, for the Lord God of Israel says, here's what God says about it, he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Now here's the untold story. Divorce is a violent act. It's like ripping a shirt. I brought with me 
this morning, this nice dress shirt. Here's what divorce is like. It's like ripping a shirt. You're left with a torn shirt that doesn't stitch back together very easily. It's not like a clean cut when you rip a shirt. What are you left with? You're left with jagged edges and ragged edges that don't come back together that well. They don't heal that well. That's the problem with divorce. It's a violent act. It's not something you just neatly stitch back up. There's a tear involved. You can repair it the best you can, but it's never new again. It leaves behind a scar. And the same is true with divorce. A nasty scar remains. I've talked to many divorcees who years later wished that they had hung on a little longer, tried a little harder. Well, I suggest today that you do that, that you hang on longer and try harder. You need to do it for yourself and do it for your kids, and you need to do it for the God you say you love. For remember, God hates divorce. Well, let me lighten the mood a bit. I'm pulling out here a list of famous last words. Here are a few final statements from the lips of dying men. Here they are. You can make it easy. That train isn't coming so fast. Uh Uh-oh. Hand me a match. I think my gas tank is empty. Hey, let's see if that gun is loaded. Honey, these biscuits are hard as a rock. Last words of dying men. Step on it. We're only going 75. Just watch me dive off that bridge. And finally, what? Your mother is going to stay a whole month? Well, Malachi was God's final word before the coming of Jesus. Between Malachi and Matthew, we have what the scholars call 400 silent years. The Babylonian Talmud which was a Jewish commentary on the Bible, states this. Malachi was last written and the Spirit departed. Malachi was God's last written word before God sent His living word, His Son Jesus. So God wanted Malachi chapters 3 and 4. This is what He wanted, ringing in the ears of His people now for the next four centuries. Here was God's preparation For the coming of his son. And it begins in chapter 3 with a prophecy. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And this verse, of course, gets quoted in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. And it gets applied to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Malachi's messenger. He was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. Reminds me, though, of the young pastor who was preaching his very first sermon. And his text was Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, he is coming. He had been told in seminary that if he ever had a loss for words, all he had to do was just repeat the text. It would, it would jar his memory, get him back on track. Well, on that particular morning, he was nervous. It was his first sermon. And so he drew a blank three different times in the sermon. Each time, though, he shouted out his text, Behold, he is coming. 
Well, the third time, the young pastor slammed his fist down on the pulpit, shouted out his text, but then he lost his balance. He fell off of the platform into the lap of a little old lady sitting on the very front row. Oh, he was so embarrassed, so apologetic. Finally, the old gal looked up at him and said, Oh, don't worry, Sonny. It was all my fault. You told me three times you were coming. Well, the Old Testament closes with a warning. God is going to pay a visit to the fallen planet. He's coming. Let me hit you with a couple of highlights here through chapter 3. Verse 2, I love verse 2. For he is like a launderer's soap. Did you know that Jesus is like a soap? He's like the dry cleaning process. You know, when you get a stain, real deep stain, you take it to the laundromat. Jesus is like a launderer's soap. If you feel dirty, if you feel dirty this morning, come to Jesus. Let him do a little scrubbing. Let him do a little washing on you. Jesus gets out the dirtiest dirt and the grimiest grime. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I do not change. Boy, isn't this comforting. God is immutable. He never changes. In a world where the only certainty is that nothing is certain, it's a great comfort to know that God doesn't move the target. In fact, one day, if you find yourself distant from God, you can be sure that it was you who moved and not God. For God never changes. God is the only anchor in this sea of flux that we're sailing in. In Malachi 3 verse 7, God states, Return to me and I will return to you. But notice the Jews' reaction. They say, In what way shall we return? Notice, they don't even know that they've drifted. They don't even know that they've left the Lord. Beware. Sin's most deadliest trait is that it causes blind spots. It makes us unaware of what's really happening. We think all is fine when in reality, God has some issues with us. And God brings up some issues. A big deal here in verse 8. He says, will a man rob God? Yeah, you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And he answers them, in tithes and offerings. Now, now robbing God, we're talking about ripping off God. That sounds like a serious offense. I think of Judas Iscariot. You, you remember Judas? He was the treasurer in Jesus' circle. The Gospels identify, that, identify him as the treasurer. And the Gospels also tell us that he stole from the petty cash. He was skimming off the top. Now, how low can you go? Stealing out of God's wallet. But you know, it's not just Judas who does that kind of thing. There are people in this room today who are as guilty as Judas, who have been stealing God blind. And they've been doing it by refusing to tithe. In the Old Testament, the tithe was not yours to give. It belonged to God right off the top. Stinginess wasn't merely the absence of giving. It meant you were stealing from God what really belonged to Him in the first place. The word tithe means tenth. Remember when Abraham went out to the high priest, he gave him a tenth of his spoils. The Mosaic Law called for several different tithes. They added up to nearly 33% of a person's income. And people today often ask, we're free from the law, 
But does that mean that New Testament believers are obligated to tithe? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Obligated to a percentage? Well, no. But don't ignore the principle. Remember, Abraham is the father of our faith. We follow Abraham's example in believing for righteousness' sake. And Abraham expressed his faith by giving 10% of his money to God. Here's the point. Don't say you're trusting God if you don't back it up. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. Verse 10 tells us one of the reasons that you need to tithe. He says, bring all of the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, in the Old Testament, God's house was the temple in Jerusalem. And the needs of the temple and its priests were paid for from the people's tithes, their regular tithes. Likewise, your tithes support the ministry of our church and its pastors. If you stop tithing to this church, understand it won't be long before your pastors are out selling pizzas. That's what, that's what it'll be. You'll, you'll want to come for counseling, and there'll be Pastor James. I mean, nobody will be there when you need them. They'll all be out selling pizzas. You see, here's a reason to tithe that's close to my heart. It pays the bills, and it feeds the pastors. That's a practical reason. But there's another great reason, verse 10. It says, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. This is the only passage in the Bible where God challenges us to test him. Often we're warned not to presume on God's mercy. But here he dares us to tithe. Just see if he doesn't open up windows of heaven in response. I got to tell you, for 30 years now, Kathy and I, have tithed our income. It was a decision we made from the beginning. Our first check, every paycheck, is to Calvary. At times we've had little, but we have never been without. God has seen to provide for our needs for the last 30 years, and I have no doubt that it's because we've made that commitment to tithe. See, I agree with the philanthropist who was asked once, how is it you give away so much, and yet you have so much left? And he replied, I shovel out, and God shovels in, and God has the bigger shovel. Hey, God dares you to try them. Just try them. Money's like manure. Stack it up, and it starts to stink. But spread it around, and it causes everything to grow. Give, and it'll be given to you. In verse 14, Malachi changes the subject. The Jews complain... It is vain to serve God. In other words, where's the benefit to serving God? They're they're saying, it doesn't really pay to serve God. And you know, I understand the feeling. I've been there. You sacrifice your blood and sweat and tears, and then you look around and see very few tangible results. Well, Malachi, though, answers their complaint in verse 16. He mentions a book of remembrance. In heaven there's a book that actually records our acts of service. You know, what you do for God here on earth may never get mentioned. It may never get appreciated in the here and now. Your name may never show up in a history book. 
But God has written it down in a far more important book. God does see. God does pay. Your goodness is being preserved for all eternity. This world might despise us, but in verse 17, God calls his people, my jewels. (laughs) I like that. We're God's diamonds. We're his valuables. You know, there's a Super Bowl commercial tonight that's running in heaven. It was paid for by God, and it's a reminder to the heavenly host. You see this spinning globe, and then the words, earth cost a few tons of dirt. And then you see the stars in the galaxies and then the words, heavens cost a few amps of electricity. And then you see the wonders of nature and the animals and then the words, fauna and flora cost a little creativity. Finally, you see our faces and the words, my people, priceless. We are God's jewels. We are his valuables. Chapter 4 is the continuation of chapter 3. And the question, does it pay to serve the Lord? And God's answer is, well, wait till payday. You'll see. When Jesus returns to earth, accounts will be settled. Chapter 4 focuses on his second coming. Verse 1 reads, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow like, grow fat like stall-fed calves. I like that. Grow fat like stall-fed calves. I'm up for that. In other words, in the end, the proud will get burned, but the humble will get healed, and they'll get healthy. You know, each year at Passover, Jewish families, they set a place at the table for Elijah. And their tradition is based on Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The prophet Elijah will return before the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 11 records the ministry of two men who appear in the final great tribulation. They have miracle powers. One of the men calls for drought And he he brings fire down from heaven. Both occurred in Elijah's ministry. And so it could be that one of those two witnesses will be Elijah. He will come before the day of the Lord. Well, notice the last word in the Old Testament. Very last word in the Old Testament. It's the word curse. For the Old Testament, law produced a curse. It put man under a curse. In contrast, if you flip ahead to the last verse of the New Testament, Revelation 22, verse 21. The last, the New Testament closes on on this word, grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Notice this, the old covenant left mankind under the curse. Jesus brings us into God's grace. And this is why we can end our hypocrisy Confess your sin. Turn to Jesus. You don't have to be who you ain't when God forgives who you is. Well, there we have the book of Malachi.